Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off In Depth Conversations in Applied Geophysics. I am joined by Dr. Chris Liner to discuss his new book, Elements of 3D Seismology. This third edition represents a thorough introduction to the acquisition, processing, and interpretation of 3D seismic data. All sections have been reviewed and updated for the new edition. Visit seg.org slash newbooks to learn more. Chris heads the Department of Geosciences at the University of Arkansas, holds the Maurice F. Storm Endowed Chair in Petroleum Geology, and has research interest in carbonate characterization and advanced seismic interpretation methods. He has served SEG as editor of the journal Geophysics, the distinguished instructor, and SEG president. Liner's current projects include the blog Seismos and teaching the industry short course Carbonate Essentials Pores to Prospects. Stay tuned after the interview to learn how you could win a copy of Oziomaz's seminal book, Seismic Data Analysis. Chris joins me next. Imagine you're at the, the SEG meeting in Houston, you're heading up the escalator. A fellow attendee gets on and just learned that you have updated elements of 3D seismology for the third edition. You know, what is your escalator pitch for the book? It's much stronger in third edition for the interpretation side of geophysics. It's benefited from recent advances in open source software and quantitative interpretation so that you need the book so that you're ready to do the work of, the, of interpreting seismic data in the industry. What motivated you to update the book? Well, it really needed to be updated from the point of view of the interpretation in particular. The book is laid out so that it's very general, and it's sort of one-stop shopping. There is wave propagation, seismic acquisition, processing, and interpretation. So it's it's a holistic thing. And the parts that were already strong, stayed strong, but the interpretation part really needed to move up. And to do that, I really, I wanted to have people working in software, or at least to see software that they could use anywhere in the world on any budget. So was that, you know, what was your goals when you walked into writing the third edition? Well, it was really to bring up the interpretation side and make it more front and center. It's always at the back of the book because you need the other parts of geophysics to get there but I felt like it needed to be freshened up quite a bit in terms of also geological ideas that have evolved and interpretation concepts like attributes and processes, things like flattening of horizons, looking at unconformity surfaces, more advanced topics like this. What have been some of those big advances in 3D seismology since you started writing these books? It's been really remarkable. The first edition of this was 1992. The 3D seismic came on in a big way in the 1980s, so that the mid-1980s. So that the first edition of this, it was really, you had to make a case for why do 3D versus 2D. And that's no longer there in the book. It's just a historical footnote. But there was a serious case back in the 80s that had to be made for 3D seismic. And then it's been the whole idea of how do you interpret and interact with this volume of data. Now, the processing side of my book is still fairly fundamental because to have a processing book about 3D seismic requires something to scale of Oziomas' book. When that book is out there, it's, it's a wonderful reference for this, and there's no point reproducing that in my book. So the other thing that my book does is it's a deep pointer to the literature. We tend not to do derivations of equations, 
we state the case for an equation and we give a result and we show how it can be used, but the derivation is elsewhere in the literature. And that lets us tighten up the book and really just give the results that people need to do the kind of work we do. You sort of give a historical overview of reflection seismology at the beginning, even going back to the great earthquake of Lisbon in 1775 with just a great quote that you said the event has been said to be the slap that started the infant science of seismology breathing. What role does history play as you write new books on reflection seismology? How does that help inform the science today? I find it fascinating because I am a historically minded person, but also you can see that certain things that happened in the past did not happen overnight. For just to give one example, the reflection coefficient thing that we use now, the Zopritz reflection coefficient that we talk about, actually was first published in 1888. And it was only in 1906 that Zopritz published his version without knowledge of the earlier version. And that's very interesting because these things have evolved in different places and different times. When you look at 3D seismology, for example, the first experiments were done in the early 1970s. It only became mainstream 15 years later, really only 20 years later. And a similar thing progresses for all sorts of technologies we do. So it shows you the time scale on when you get uptake of new ideas in the industry. And it takes much longer than you think. Even though someone publishes a paper today about some fantastic new idea, it can be 15 to 20 years before it shows up in production work in the business. You know, as a non-technical writer, I, I really lingered on that quote by Samuel Johnson that you used to open the book about the greatest part of a writer's time is spent in reading in order to write. You know, what is the significance of that quote to you? Well, it's, it's absolutely true. Uh, Johnson had it correct. I've got a pretty substantial technical library like most people do that are professors. And I find myself perennially going back to those sources and trying to pull out the best of those. We have such a beautiful body of literature. And I have applied seismology books all the way back to 1919, some of them. There's some great books from the 30s, McElwain and Sohan and others. And the science that they described, the physics that they described, is still valid today. It has its own sphere of influence. And really by digging through that and being selective and pulling out what you want to move forward with, you can build a modern book today. It's, it's tempting just to, to write a book on full waveform inversion, and there's a place for that kind of book. But the kind of book that I write has everything in a historical context. So you mentioned that kind of at the front, one of the things you wanted to include in this is the open data and the open source software available that, that is now here. You know, how has the availability of public domain software influenced 3D seismology? Well, it, it has made a difference at all levels. And I would say that from the point of view of being a teacher, a university teacher in particular, you can really see the impact. Just to give you one example, I recently gave a short course to the university or to the Tulsa Geological Society, and it was an education days thing, a one-day training on 3D seismic interpretation for very small companies. Companies have two or three employees, which can rarely afford the kind of software it takes to do 3D seismic interpretation. They often get 3D seismic data when they trade for well data or they do a purchase of property and there's a pre-existing 3D. So some of this data comes in a shop and what do they do with it? And what we were able to do at that meeting was everybody brought their laptop, everybody downloaded the open source software, 
everybody got the open source data package that uh, was specified, and we were able to sit there in one day and get people to track horizons and interpret 3D seismic data from scratch. I always think about that we have 300 student sections around the world. Many of those are in first world countries. Many of those are at great universities that can afford anything they want. But there are many that can't. And this lets those places have a start in the modern world of 3D seismic interpretation. As you imagine, or if you are imagining a fourth edition of this book, and you, you look out on the field of reflection seismology, what do you see as the next advances? What, what gets you excited to maybe write another book? Well, in terms of the fourth edition of this book, I think the next thing that would really need to be brought in is more in the area of rock physics and petrophysics, but that is a vast literature on its own. There are very good books. But in the same vein that uh, I've done before, it would be a matter of picking and choosing those results that are robust and of general application and then referring back to the primary source, even other books, so that someone can follow the trail. And then also the whole emerging field of full waveform inversion. And what that does, it's really fundamentally different. In the book now, we sort of finish the whole thing talking about seismic migration, pre-stack depth, pre-stack time, that's all in there. But when you talk about full waveform inversion, you get a different kind of product. You don't get an image of the earth through your seismic data. The real product is a velocity model. And the velocity model is accurate enough, is detailed enough that you can interpret on that directly. We're not quite there yet, but in 3D, we're getting close. We still have limitations on computing. Algorithms are still being developed, but the processes are there. And in another five years, the main object of interpretation will be the geological velocity model from full waveform inversion, not seismic data. You'll probably always have those two side by side, but I expect that's going to be the next big change. Who is the, the audience for this book? Well, originally it was students. It was meant to be a series of courses that I taught at the undergraduate and graduate level back at the University of Tulsa. And I was writing notes for all these classes back in the uh, early 90s. And I just started thinking, I need to just put all this together. And that became first edition of the book. And I think it still serves that purpose. It's probably at the upper undergraduate level. Uh, it could also be a graduate level class in any of those aspects of acquisition, processing, or interpretation. Now, on the wave propagation side, it is, again, very selective on results. There are much more theoretical books out there, and those have their place in the world. But, again, this book just tries to show really important results, put them in context, and move on, not have a long diversions for proofs and derivations. What were some of your takeaways, be it personal or professional, as you were writing the third edition? Well, it was a lot of work. Of course, I was doing it during the year I was president. And so it actually came out in my past president in 16. But so really, it's about a two-year process to update a book like this. And I had a wonderful editor in Susan Stamm, who worked very closely with me, and also a technical editor that looked at the book. Uh, SEG does a wonderful job on getting their books really peer-reviewed so that you can depend on the information. Someone's really looked at it. Someone's thought hard about it. But also, it was just the details of exactly how are you going to pull out this information? How are you going to make these selections? I was, from the time the second edition came out, I was collecting up 
PDFs of papers so that I said, well, this is a topic I may want to add. This is a topic I may want to add. And when you get around to it, you have way too much <laughs> and you have to be selective. So we're back to Johnson's quote. You've got hundreds of PDFs and various topics out there and you've got to be somewhat selective and say, what is it that we can bring in that will sort of help people understand without overwhelming it, making a 10 volume book. It's really, you're, you feel like you're a, you're a librarian, that you're out there picking and choosing topics that you think are important enough and trying to put them in context so that someone can use that information. And then when it's specifically in an area of interest to them, they can drill down into the primary literature. So if you were able to somehow magically drop all your responsibilities of teaching and, and your volunteer work with the SEG and could focus on something that you talked about and, and gave an overview in your book, you know, if there's one area that you would just dig in fully and, and explore more, does something jump out to you? Well, in a way, I, I kind of have done that. There's a, a short course that I've evolved for the SEG called uh, Carbonate Essentials, and it's it is sort of a holistic look at carbonate uh, rocks, rock physics, petrophysics, and seismic interpretation associated with carbonates. And so, in effect, I am drilling down right now into that whole area. And eventually, some of that material is going to make it into a fourth edition of this book, or it will just be a separate book all by itself. But carbonates are fascinating because they have got very different properties from uh, sandstone and shales. You know, they're formed in place. They're not usually transported sediment. They're chemical rocks. They're subject to dissolution. You can form uh, caverns and caves. And you also have diagenesis plays a primary role. When these things are buried, it changes the nature of the rock, both chemically and structurally. Where when you bury a sandstone, it becomes less porous, tighter, okay? But it's fundamentally the same. The quartz in a sandstone just doesn't really undergo much chemical alteration with burial. But carbonates, it's crazy. It's like there's only two minerals in all of these carbonates, dolomite and calcite, and yet the rock physics of them is the least understood so far. People are still doing all kinds of studies to try and understand exactly what controls the primary you know, properties of velocity and other things with carbonate rocks. Plus here in Arkansas, we have the carbonate rocks at the surface for the Mississippian series so we can go see these rocks and less than 100 miles away we see them in wireline and 3D seismic data so that we can make those connections. The new book already has several examples of these things and for one thing you can see for example old karst surfaces. Karst as you may know is the surface where you have limestone at the surface and it's weathered and you get caves and sinkholes and all this. It's very common in uh, some parts of North America. But when that's deeply buried you get paleokarst and from 3D seismic you can see this whole terrain but only up to a certain scale because of seismic resolution limits and that's something of great interest to me is how much can we say about a paleokarst based on 3D seismic when we walk out onto a landscape, we can see everything down to the size of a, a grain. But in 3D seismic, we have limits. And how much can we say about the karst topography? Is it mature? Is it immature? Did it form at the surface? Did it form at depth? So those are things of interest to me now. What do you hope your readers take away from this book? Well, I hope they take away uh, some excitement for the subject and really an interest in pursuing the primary literature in the field that they're interested in, whatever it is, whatever aspect. I try to make a readable book. 
so that it doesn't get bogged down. And I always give the advice when someone reads my book or any other book, if you reach something that you don't understand, particularly equations, the uh, novice should do the same thing that the expert would do, which is skip it. You read around it like a novel. And when you reach some series of equations that you don't know what it means, just jump around to the next sentence, and the words should stand on their own. And I like to think they do. And I'm really writing these books so that people can enjoy petroleum seismology and reflection seismology as much as I do, and that I can give them a foundation and let them build up and understand the history of it and the culture and then the science so that they're ready to go off and do their own thing. Would you like to win a copy of Oz Yilmaz's seminal book, Seismic Data Analysis? Write a review of the podcast on iTunes, email us at podcast at seg.org confirming your review before April 1, 2017, and you will be eligible to win. Visit seg.org slash podcast for more information and the complete show notes from this episode. Season 1 of Seismic Sound Off is sponsored by the SEG Wiki home to hundreds of biographies of key geoscientists, geophysical tutorials, and core content from the science of applied geophysics. Visit wiki.seg.org to learn how you can grow the world's first online geophysics encyclopedia. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was produced by Isaac Farley and hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary. Special thanks to Susan Stam, our SEG Books Manager. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.